Ice Theaters, the market's most immersive and high-end premium format. Because the light shall be treated like sound coming from everywhere. Discover the Ice Theaters experience and embark on an immersive odyssey beyond reality. Ice Theaters, meet us at CinemaCon with 2617A. You know, we all played Unhinged, probably one of the first movies that came out from Solstice. So we went to work of like, okay, how do we move the needle? And it wasn't necessarily at the beginning because they were doing their own marketing. But it was, I think we kept it for like five weeks. And the fifth week, we were like, let's do an event. It's called a car smash event. <laughs> and so it's like major studio, like AMC can't do this because of the liability, but we're like the scrappy I'd, upstarts. I'd we're like, like to do that. let's bring in a car and have people take swings at it for a dollar. So we, with margaritas or with, no? With, so I need was, to move to a, Maryland is what you're telling me. <laughs> if you had anything to drink, you could not swing. Um, so we dropped a car, brought a car, an old car in the middle of the parking lot. And um, what's cool about it, I think what we did was we moved the needle. We could prove that we had a 2% lift and unhinged compared to what we would have done in its fifth week and its last week. So Solstice was happy about that. But we also gave all that money away to a local nonprofit. So it was a way for us to drive ticket sales at the same time, sort of be part of the fabric of the community. This is the Box Office Podcast in our special daily CinemaCon edition brought to you by Ice Theaters. Today is Thursday, April 28th, the final day, thank God, the final day of CinemaCon 2022. I know we all look forward to this event, but we're pretty tired really as it rounds in to the final hours here. But once again, we're ready to bring you everything you missed on yesterday's event, all of the highlights, all of the recaps from the studio presentations. My colleagues, Sean Robbins and Rebecca Polly are here with me to go over that. And in today's feature segment, we've got a recap of that Tuesday morning, 7.45 a.m. session. Maybe you slept through it. Maybe you partied a little bit too hard on Monday night. Don't worry, we've got those highlights here for you. That is the marketing roundtable that was moderated by CNBC's Sarah Whitten, featuring panelists that include Alicia Cook, the director of advertising at AMC Theaters, Rich Dottridge, the president and CEO of Warehouse Cinemas, Ben Dayton, the general manager, marketing, Australian New Zealand for Reading Cinemas, and Annalise Holyoke, the senior national director of marketing and loyalty for Cinepolis USA. Those highlights are coming at the end of the episode in our feature segment. Uh, and of course, leading up to it, we are gonna go through today's schedule, the final day here, and then that's gonna be followed by our new segment where we are going to be going into our reactions from everything that happened yesterday here at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. So let's look at today's schedule, guys. 7.45 a.m., another early start time. I don't know how we're making it to all of these things, but we are. And we are starting with parallel sessions here. One from the National Association of Concessionaires and one from the ICTA, the Technology Association. Both of those occurring at the Palace Ballrooms this morning. 
over later on in the morning, we've got a 9.15 start time with Paramount Studio presentation and a really highly anticipated screening at this year's edition of CinemaCon, an advance look at the entirety of Top Gun Maverick. We saw, I think a good, what was it? 15, 20 minutes of the movie at last year's event. We're seeing the whole thing here today. I know a lot of exhibitors are looking forward to seeing that movie. That will be followed by a special lunch program in celebration of the film, moderated by The Hollywood Reporter. And we've got panelists from both Paramount, the film's producer, Jerry Bruckheimer, he'll be there. And so will Joseph Kaczynski, the director of the film, alongside one of the actors, Glenn Powell, That'll be happening at lunchtime today. And here on Thursday, the day ends with the final studio presentation of the week. At 2.45 p.m., Lionsgate will be having their studio presentation, showing off their slate for this year. We're excited to really round off what's been a very busy and eventful week. And uh, Sean, Rebecca, I'm just thrilled that we're all still here in one piece. Well, I'm barely here. I think I'm kind of at the point where I'm Michael J. Fox at the end of Back to the Future. That's how my, my brain feels right now. I don't know about you guys. That's a good 80s callback. Yeah. If only we were all as cool as Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future. <laughs> I Last. like the Biff character in that one. Biff, I think he was misunderstood. Come I think on. he got a raw deal in that movie series. Also, yeah. the third one sucked. I, I do have to say now. No, no. No, no. The third you, you one guys are. Mary <laughs> you guys are Back to the Future 3 fans. Yeah. Yes! It's my second favorite. It's my last crusade. What What's am your I least doing favorite? here? Two. No, two is the best one. I like them all, but if I had to rank. No, the third, two is the, there's the third, a fine... The third is kishy and campy in a way that yeah. is admirable, I yeah. think. All right, fair enough. And we actually, we have here listening in Romeo Duchenne from Box Office Pro France. You might recognize him if you're in the French market. He is a regular contributor for us in L'Emission, which is live every Thursday over on YouTube. Romeo, hi, how are you? Hi, everyone. Nice to meet you. And I have to say sorry for my English. I'll do my best. Let's actually dive right into the conversation on everything that went over today at CinemaCon. The day starts off with a panel from the Cinema Foundation on HR, on hiring, on staff retention. We're not going to go into that because we are going to have highlights from that panel in tomorrow's episode. Let's talk about what we saw on the big screen at the Coliseum today. Sean, the morning started with Disney presenting their footage. The day, actually, I think the best place to start here is a personal appearance from Kevin Feige. That was surprising. I didn't expect that. What happened there? He came in with, it sounded like an unscripted introduction. Right. He was essentially the first guy out of the gate. I think Disney wanted to put the face that everybody knows and loves out there for their return to CinemaCon. He came out and said, essentially, I love movies. I love you all and I thank you all. And you could tell, like, it's not one of those quotes that was pre-planned. And if it was, he still meant it. We actually got to see 20 minutes of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Or is it right. and the Multiverse in, of Madness? In, in the Multiverse. the Multiverse of Madness. In, and is out. In is in. In is in. All right. So that, that's good. It's going to help my copy moving forward. So that happened. Actually, Tony Chambers from the distribution side over at Disney citing some pre-sale figures to date. Sean, after Tony Chambers' comments on those pre-sale numbers, where are you with the forecasting on this film that's opening in the first weekend of May? Still pretty confident. He cited 42 million in domestic pre-sales already. 
based on what we've seen in the past with certain movies, I think that lines up with where forecasts are right now. It's, we'll find out, I think, a little more clearly next week, but this is looking like it's going to be one of the all-time higher openers, at least maybe it gets to 200 million, maybe not. We'll talk probably more about that next so week. So we're we talking about it in comparison to No Way Home. It, well, that's a little bit out of reach, I think. But, okay. yeah, it's everything. I mean, that's essentially, think of it as, like, every Star Wars movie outside of The Force Awakens. I think No Way Home is The Force Awakens. Of this is right Star now. Wars numbers. A guy right. named Doctor Strange is getting Star Wars I mean, numbers. I that's will, fantastic. I will say, me personally, I was, you know me, I'm a horror nerd. The Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is directed by Sam Raimi, who, as far as horror nerds are concerned, is a god. That said, I mean, I I was kind of like, I'm, yeah, I'm going to see Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness but I wasn't excited about it. After seeing the footage... You're excited. I'm excited. Talking about footage, we also saw on the non-Marvel studio side, 30 minutes from Lightyear. We don't want to go too much into that range. I think there might be some light spoilers, so we are aren't not going to discuss those 30 minutes of Lightyear footage. But Rebecca, generally, what was your reaction to the footage? When that first trailer came out, I thought, oh my goodness, this is gorgeous. Where are the jokes? There were no jokes. There were no... There are jokes in the film. Good. That's not a spoiler. We can confirm that there are jokes in the film. It was a real concern. That was a really, like, serious, like, somber, like, Batman-style Buzz Lightyear trailer. And the film still appears to be very, uh, you know, space adventure-driven, but it felt more Pixar than the trailer did. It will be great to see Pixar back on the big screen where it belongs. We also saw footage from, well, maybe this isn't going to be a, let's call it a big tentpole, but it's a big name attached here. David O. Russell with Amsterdam coming out on November 4th. I mean, it's gonna play in premium large format screens. A David O. Russell movie and PLF auditoriums. They said that in the presentation. That's wild. It's a a historical epic starring John David Washington, Margot Robbie, Christian Bale. I mean, those names enough or enough to get me kind of interested and curious about the movie. It seems drama, historical, World War II spy. I get I a little bit of a comedy angle, too. Yeah, I, I don't know what it's know about. I didn't know from the trailer what yeah. it was about. But it looked charming. They're stars. Streamers. I like those people. Right? Think, of it, think of it in this way. Remember American Hustle? Yes. It was a yeah. charming movie. There's stars there. I still don't know what it's about. Yeah. I saw that movie like Even five years Even some of very serious movie when you think about it, but... What's it about? Yeah, like it doesn't matter. It's a great time. That's the thing about David O. Russell. He's a filmmaker that you just have a good time watching his movies. I think that has a bigger box office potential than many other David O. Russell films. I mean, and the big reveal, the big news was Avatar 2, but we do have one more film before we get to Avatar 2, for which we now have a title, that being the Bob's Burgers movie, an adaptation of a, I think it's fair to say, kind of like a cult animated Fox cartoon. People are very passionate about it. It's a movie that we're not really looking forward to as fans, but we saw the first five minutes of it is people that don't know what a Bob's Burgers is. Would you see this movie after the first five minutes? I honestly, I probably would. It's very charming. I think that's going to be a word we use a lot for some of these movies, but yeah. And it's echoing what we said on yesterday's podcast uh, with regard to actually several titles, apparently. Uh, the Bob's Burgers movie is a musical? Yeah, I didn't yeah. know. There's songs? Yeah. And, and it was like a good song, too. It, it was, was catchy. It was catchy. Yeah. It's interesting. It was I mean, the first callback I think of is the Simpsons movie, but that was such a huge brand when it came out. I think Bob's Burgers is 
not quite maybe at that echelon, but still maybe this is a good counter programmer out there for younger audiences, maybe teens. Yes, and it's a counter programmer for Memorial Day right. when we know Top Gun Maverick is going to open. Right. Ah, that's a risky move, though. Putting a movie in wide release going up against Top Gun Maverick. Right. We're going to see how this plays out, and you can find that out not in this episode, but if you go over to boxofficepro.com, Sean's weekend forecast and long-range forecast columns on Wednesdays, and Fridays respectively, you'll be getting all our updates on how we're tracking the industry. But let's move forward, guys, because the big headline here of today, of CinemaCon, Avatar 2 exists. Wait, no, it's wait. a real thing. It has a, a subtitle. It's not it's Avatar a subtitle. 2. It's a real movie Avatar, now. Avatar The Way of Water. I am going to pass judgment on the footage we saw. It looked awesome. It looked great. What was your reaction? This was in 3D, by the way. I hadn't opened a pair of 3D glasses, I think, yeah. in like four years. Same here. I think the last thing I saw in 3D was Infinity War, maybe, and it was only because I had to, to be honest. It was a lack of options for the day I was seeing it. You know what? If James Cameron says this is how he wants to be seen, I'm going to do it. That's what I've really come to feel over the years. I've doubted him in the past, and I feel like this teaser is exactly that. It didn't show a lot, but it showed just enough to prove that it exists. Obviously, in, in the North American market, 3D has dropped off. I mean, Avatar came out and everyone was like, oh, we're going to post-convert everything to 3D. <laughs> Turns out, when you do that and you don't do it right, it right. looks bad. Yeah, it's, I think it's a challenge, right? And we saw that in the early days of 3D, so I think Avatar set a standard. A lot of studios got the 3D standard wrong. So I actually looked up the numbers from the Motion Picture Association's theme report. And in 2016, 3D movies brought in $8.8 .8 billion in global box office. That was a 22% of the market share of that year. Now, it's, it's unfair to compare pre-pandemic box office numbers with 2020 or mm -hmm. 2021. So we're not gonna do that. But I did look at the 2019 figures. 2019 3D global box office brought in 6.5 billion, a 15% market share of the global box office. We have to look at that market share. It's dropping globally, it's so, waning. Given that, Daniel, I mean, the footage we saw of Avatar with Dolby 3D, it was gorgeous. I, when I saw the original Avatar, I didn't see it on IMAX, I didn't see it in 3D, I, I saw it in 2D normal, and that was another announcement that Disney is going to be re-releasing the original Avatar, so I am excited I'll finally get to see the original Avatar. When's that uh, coming out, Sean, that, that re-release of the original? September 23rd, so perfect timing when there's kind of an open spot on the calendar right after summer, going into there. fall which we've talked about recently needing more content. So we're, we're seeing the re-release of that. And then in December, we're going to see the sequel. And then this one's going to have 3D, a high dynamic range, high frame rate. It's going to, I mean, if it's judged by what we saw in this presentation, it's going to look amazing if projected in the way that James Cameron envisions it. Which, Ooh, that's a big caveat yes, in yes. 2022. <laughs> when there is a global supply chain disruption and technology shortages. Are the projectors and the cinema equipment needed to project this at the standard that producer John Landau and director James Cameron expect, even if you have the cash, 
can you get a projector in in time for it's opening not, day? I'm not, it's a real question we have to ask here. I'm not going to see Avatar Way of Water in anything other than the best possible way. I'm not going to do it. I think a lot of moviegoers would agree with you. So it's something we have to ask. Is the global supply chain disruption going to impact this film's release or reception? I mean, they're putting this trailer exclusively in front of Doctor oh, Strange that, next week. I you won't really be able to see enjoyed, it online until the week after. Let's I enjoyed the, the Avatar 2 footage. Yeah. I enjoyed the Doctor Strange footage. Them saying that the Avatar 2 trailer was going to be exclusively in theaters for a week was my favorite part of the Disney presentation. Now yes. we're getting we're getting to the point of theatrical exclusivity where trailers are getting theatrical Which, exclusivity. Do we all remember when like the Phantom Menace trailer had theatrical yes. exclusivity and it was a huge oh, deal. Oh, people would buy tickets just to see the trailer. I, I like the marketing strategy here. You have theatrical exclusivity on a trailer to reinforce the technology aspect, the movie-going component. So uh, September 23 release, we'll see how that goes. And then December release that I think is going to be highly anticipated. The other thing we do have to talk about here that, that may impact your, your projections, Sean, down the line, when we talk about 3D, it was such a big part of the first Avatar movie. I don't know how much of a part 3D is going to play in Avatar The Way of Water. Right. But what, what I can say is the number of 3D screens in the United States has actually dropped by 14% since 2018. So in 2018, according to the Motion Picture Association, there were 15,511 digital 3D screens in the United States. In 2021, that number's down to 13,292. That is a big drop. 14% in three years. So right now, as we're seeing the evolution of movie going where we're probably over-screened in the US and exhibitors are recognizing that, and some of those auditoriums are being turned into kitchen spaces to add a dining element, and you're turning a 12plex into an 8plex uh, in a lot of locations. Yeah, I think 3D has been a casualty of that. That's why I'm not sure how much you're gonna play, be playing up the, the 3D aspect of this movie. So a lot of important questions. If you're still listening, thank you for geeking out as we talk about technology formats and at the we're, movies. And we're about to head into the Universal program. Yeah, which there will be a, less boring tech talk there. A lot of films announced <laughs> this one, so. This will be a little bit easier for our more uh, consumer-oriented listeners. So thank you for sticking with us. Sean, there's so many titles in this universal presentation. Yeah. <laughs> We're not gonna talk about all the movies, but let's talk about the ones that really stood out. The presentation starts with remarks from Donna Langley, followed by Jim Orr, who said something interesting. Over 25 movies this year from Universal, that's 10 more theatrical releases than any other major studio. These guys are putting films in theaters. What stood out for you from this presentation, Sean, on the films that are coming up on the schedule? A lot. Like you said, we can't get to them all, but the opener was, I think, a lot of people's most anticipated movie this summer, Jordan Peele's Nope. That's mine. Uh, yeah. I, I, I just want to ask you, what did we see that was not in the original trailer? Uh, we saw a few things to the point where I, I looked down because I didn't want to see any more, but the, the comfort that I was given by just even being in the room was the fact that Jordan Peele came out and introed this movie and spoke about how important the mystery is to him, mm -hmm. sounding very much... In so the I'm vein not watching of any more trailers your Nolans and your J.J. Abrams. Like, they respect the mystery for the audience. So with right. the new stuff that was shown, you still don't have much of a clue. We don't know on. what's going on. I, I right. was here for this trailer. 
But something that was interesting here in the Universal presentation, and Rebecca, we were here for this last year when they did the, a remote version of this. They brought on stage, next to the stars, every time a filmmaker or a film star came up in this presentation, they had a local theater worker, a local movie theater worker there with them. That was close or associated to them in some way. Yeah, on stage. It was great. We got to see a lot of It was really lovely last year. I'm curious, as as I said earlier, a big horror fan, the Halloween remake trilogy, the second of those Halloween kills went day and date on uh, in theaters and on Peacock. Kind of uh, mixed reception. I, I yeah. myself was mixed on the film. We have uh, some information on the third film in that trilogy, Halloween Ends. What did we see and did they confirm that it's only theatrical? We saw a few new parts. They did not confirm or say anything to my recollection about it being mm. exclusive theaters that's a toss-up right uh, i don't know how that's gonna play out we have a, a universal horror movie doing day and date Firestarter within the next yeah and they didn't they show, show anything nothing, nothing they didn't even so, mention it that's a good so point Rebecca. Be a test case. well i think that's a really good point you bring up because Firestarter is on that slate it's day and date on peacock it's the, a similar the streaming service genre similar, aiming similar people. And, and we didn't see anything of that title and they actually went big with, with what we saw from from halloween well, and they, some footage they had 25 plus movies you want 30 plus movies they yeah got, we're not gonna got, go through all of them it's exhausting yeah there's yeah there's a lot here so let's let's actually move on to the next one because because this one, and you guys know of this about me, I tell you guys all the time, I have like a basic credo when it comes to watching a movie. It's not a waste of time if it has a ghost or a robot in it. I might not like it, it might not be good, but it's not a waste of time because at least you got to see a ghost or at least you got to see a robot, and I don't see either of those things so, every day. So we're talking about the, the Bloomhouse film, Megan, and I feel like yeah. you two tell me, you, you've been to more CinemaCons than I have. Every year there's kind of one poster that sticks out at you, and you're like, what is this? For me, this year, it was this poster for Megan. It's a robot, and it's, it's, an, evil, it's an evil robot. Right. So, Sean, what, awesome. what, the poster is very ambiguous. All it is is an evil like adolescent yeah. robots sitting on a bed. I wasn't even sure what it was until the trailer. To me, I mean, this is super creepy. Honestly, if I had to think of a comparison, it, it looks like Child's Play for Gen Z. And yeah. Gen Z. yeah. Oh, that's a good full it's, quote. It's They're going to really... put you on the poster, dude. Watch out. You're going to be on the Blu-ray. Yeah, watch out. First time for everything. <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah, uh, that, it looked amazing. I think one has more than proven his capabilities in the genre. And the fact that it's opening January, this kind of original horror movie in that time of year that can kind of slow down, that could really provide a good start to next year. The next one we have here on the list, I mean, Easter Sunday. I, I'm going to admit I've never heard of this. Yeah, I hadn't heard of this either. Sean, did you know yeah. about this movie, Easter yeah. Sunday? Okay, yeah. Yeah. so this oh, was okay, interesting. So we're just bad at it, our jobs. Yeah, yeah well, we're not good. I mean, that, that's why Sean is, is leading the analysis of what's coming up. Uh, so you've been tracking this. You've been following this. This was very interesting. It was one of the highlights, I felt, of the presentation. What's your take on Easter Sunday? Yeah, I think it started out Joe Coy, the star of the film and a very popular comedian, essentially came out and did a stand-up routine for about 10 minutes. And arguably one of the best parts of the CinemaCon so far, I would rank it up there with Dwayne Johnson's star presence of the stage. Even though not everybody knows Joe Coy, this reminded me of... You know him now after you went to CinemaCon. Maybe after this movie. And the, the trailer really... It looks like a cute kind of family movie with some adult appeal. This is a movie that I think I would watch on a date night or with my mom or honestly alone on a Tuesday. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me then that, I mean, 
Universal's pushing it. They must, Sean, I mean, does it seem like they have great confidence in the film? I think they do. And it's, again, it's another one of those movies that's timed outside of what we used to view as your traditional movie-going windows. And I really think this is the kind of content that lives up to that billing of original not reliant on IP, just something fresh for moviegoers. I mean, it's on my radar now, and I couldn't even make it to the universe presentation, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll be looking forward to that release when Easter Sunday comes out. We had a couple more titles here on the Universal side on the slate. Minions coming out in the marketplace. Not too much to go into here, Sean. I mean, did... it's Minions. It's going to make a... Yeah, it's, come on, it's a guarantee. Yeah. Let's give this spotlight here on the podcast to some other movies. It's going to do well, exhibitors. Don't do, worry. You're going to pack screens with it. Have- but I absolutely think this this will be one of the big hits of the summer because it's after Lightyear. It's, an, it's a big animated franchise movie, and parents, kids haven't had that for three years. And- yeah. So we'll be looking forward to that release, I think, in many, many countries, territories. These Minions movies are... Just a guaranteed hit, basically. The universal in, language. Oh, yeah. I mean, across, like, countless, countless countries. Interesting trailer here, Sean. Bros, this was actually a highlight for me. Yeah. Could you go over the entirety of what this concept brings from Universal? So this is another, and I say another, even though it's it's actually a first-of-its-kind film, but it's another film from you know the guys who made Neighbors, Nicholas Stoller is his name, the director. Billy Eichner is a star. This is essentially a a rom-com for the LGBTQ plus community. First of its kind. Or for straight people who just like good rom-coms. That too. And that was a big part of Billy Eichner's selling. Like, he was another one of the entertaining aspects of selling this movie. It's like, it is this for our community, but it's for everybody at the same time. So we're excited to see that movie coming out later this year. Bros from writer-director Billy Eichner. But let's move on forward to, I think, the main course here from the Universal presentation. There's dinosaurs. The dinosaurs actually show up in Jurassic World Dominion. What did we see there, Sean? Because this one's coming out this summer. We saw a, I think it was basically an extended version of the recent trailer that came out. You know what? We might as well just call this movie Jurassic World The Force Awakens or Jurassic World No Way Home. (laughs) It's a multi-generational Jurassic movie. And Sam Neill in the original Jurassic Park yeah. was a big deal for pre-adolescent me. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, I'm curious on this because the, the first two Jurassic World, I mean, they were critically mixed, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. they made money. But I they mean, made a yeah, ton, of, made money, a ton so of money. So, Romeo, were you at Universal when this came out? I mean, you, so Romeo Duchenne here from Box Office France, you worked the distribution angle both at Sony and Universal in France. What was the reception of these Jurassic World movies in, in Europe? Huge, huge. And personally, I was. I think I joined Universal just to release that movie. Really? I grew, they... up, I grew up with Jurassic Park. I had dinosaur on my blanket. I, I, I just joined Universal for that. <laughs> and, I, and, and, I, and I remember they released the, the first one in 3D, I think. Yeah. Oh, I saw yeah. that. That was, and I was good. The 20th anniversary. Yeah, and I was excited at the time just for the first one to see in theater because I was born in 1992. So the first one I've seen on VHS while my mother was Yeah, we all like, giving oh, like, birth to here to our listeners, like our faces just dropped when Romeo openly admitted he was born in 1992. <laughs> With this nostalgia that we have for Jurassic World, for the original, that's what this movie does, Sean. It gets that nostalgia of the original Jurassic Park that all of us, including children born in 1992, have for this franchise, <laughs> and uh, and it brings him, it, it it brings it in to the current generation of movies. One of the ones I'm curious about, and it's not 
I am not the target audience for this film at all, and I'm not really interested in it as a film. But the second Puss in Boots movie, I feel like this has been in the works for like 10 years. And it, it seems like one that's been heavily promoted here. Like there are posters all over the place for it. Yeah. And like it's freaking, it's a freaking Shrek spinoff. Shrek used to be a powerhouse, yeah, right? Coming back, it's I'm, coming back. Do coming I want to see the back. film? I don't know uh, yeah, because I wasn't I at the know, Universal man. presentation. I think this is, the, this is the practice for Shrek 5. I already see the marketing poster. It's a giant S, but it's a five, and it has Shrek horns. I guarantee it's coming within the Dude, next does it, year. Does it seem like it's going to be good, skills. or it's going to make money? A lot, like the Puss and Bush. I think money? so. It'll be, you know, it it'll be a, it's at Christmas now. It won't be Shrek money, but the first one did surprisingly well. Eleven years ago, granted. Well, that's it for the Universal presentation, and all those movies are coming to screens in the coming weeks and months. But that wasn't the end of Universal's presentation because their specialty arm focus features was back in the presentation. Friend of Exhibition, Lisa Bonnell from Focus coming on stage, introducing footage of a number of titles. We don't have time to go over all of them. I can tell you my one favorite Focus title that we saw a preview of. It was Violent Night from the production team behind the John Wick movies. Violent Night is an action thriller comedy in that vein of nobody, but it stars a dude playing Santa Claus. David Harbour. Who's the, who, who? I'm sorry, David Harbour, David I Harbour. called you a dude. David, um, ha- come on, man. I, uh, I don't, who's David Stranger Harbour? Things. Uh, that's why I don't know what's, uh, David, David Harbour, badass Santa Claus? Yes. Yeah. I can, I can yeah. see it. It looks he, amazing. I see it. He, he, he kicks butt. <laughs> yeah. I see it. He does karate. It's karate Santa Claus. There you I go. I gave you a better it. title. Karate sold. Santa Claus. Ticket sold. That's basically the big highlight I had from the Focus Features presentation. But another title that actually came out in France tonight as we're recording this is now, the I, main course, I think, for this Focus Features got, target audience. I got to ask Romeo about this because I don't want to say I'm a big fan of Downton Abbey because I, I watched the first few seasons and there's only so far that beautiful costumes can take me. But I was really pleasantly surprised by the first movie. It was it was light. There wasn't much to it. But darn it, I had a good time. We have a sequel coming out. I mean, the, the original movie was very much, I mean, the kind of thing we've been speaking about, it's yeah. a mid-range title that brought out adult audiences. Overperformed theatrically, Overperformed. I think it's fair to say, yeah. yeah. The second one, I mean, how did it do opening weekend? Well, the second one, well, not opening day. Yeah, opening day in France. Yeah, yes, it opened on Wednesday today, yeah, we, right? Yeah, as we yeah, record we like this. we do different stuff, you know, like yeah, opening on Wednesday. And we don't count into million of dollars. We right, you count in admissions. Admissions. Yeah, so, admission. I'll try yeah. to speak your language, but I have to talk about <laughs> admission. So give us some context here, Romeo, because we are looking at international figures to inform our analysis domestically of how this movie is going to play out in a demographic is, that has been very slow to return. How did Downton Abbey 2 open in France compared to the original? Well, pretty good. I mean, uh, yesterday they made like 30,000 admission. The first one with preview, sorry. And the first yeah. one made like 35,000 admission. So from 35,000 yeah. in the first one to 30,000 in the sequel, that's not a big Which swing. No. That's Isn't not bad, bad. Considering, I mean, the show has been off the air for that many more years. Yeah. And yeah. the audience has been away from the screen yeah. for that, that many, many more, more years. years. Yeah. By that same thought, though, it's also a show, I'm biased here because I fall into this group, who binged it during the pandemic. I ah, think. good I think point. It's one of those shows that had been off for a while and then all of a sudden 
it's maybe found a second life. And yeah, I think 30,000 admission is quite good. Exit poll are quite equal as the as the first one. And the mm-hmm. first one made around $6 million uh, in France. And it was, don't get me wrong, it, it might sound small for you guys from North America, <laughs> domestic market, but it was the third market international, internationally. And yeah. the first one, obviously, is the UK. They made right. $36 million, right. which was almost 40% of all the international box office. Mm-hmm. So that was huge in the UK. And I don't know what Sean forecast is for the second one, but it might be around 40 million dollars. Uh, the first one made like almost 100, 100 yeah, right? Just shy of 100, yeah. It opened yeah. to a little over 30 million and actually had legs, which was kind of unexpected really? for a television adaptation with a fan base. I, didn't, right? I was one of those who didn't family. see it until later because yeah. of word of mouth. Right. Mean, you say the exit poll between one and two was similar, so it might be a similar situation yeah. of just yeah. people cashing up with it. It's very yeah. possible. I think the big question, obviously, stateside is where is that audience returning or in terms of returning? And past TV adaptation sequels kind of see a drop off, but this is not necessarily your run of the mill sequel. And as what? we're seeing from the early results, there there could be less less uh, erosion of that original audience than maybe once expected. So, Sean, this comes out pretty soon, right? Right, two weeks after Doctor Strange, I believe that would be May the twentieth, and one week before Top Gun. Although there's probably some, I think those two films will coexist. Top Gun's. Older guys, maybe some younger guys, Downton Abbey, going for a predominantly female audience. I'm and a 37-year-old woman, and I'm going to see both. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll be looking forward to these movies. Romeo, Sean, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us for this spirited discussion about movies. Always fun to be here at CinemaCon and react to these movies. Coming up next in our feature interview segment, we've got highlights from the Tuesday morning 7.45 a.m. panel For all you people that partied really hard Monday night at CinemaCon, this is your lucky opportunity to catch up on that 7.45 a.m. panel. It's called The Show Starts on the Street, Marketing the Theatrical Experience to Your Audience. It was moderated by Sarah Witten of CNBC and features insights from panelists Alicia Cook, the Director of Advertising at AMC Theatres, Rich Dottridge, President and CEO at Warehouse Cinemas, Ben Dighton, the General Manager of Marketing over at Australia and New Zealand for Reading Cinemas, and Annalise Holyoke, the Senior National Director of Marketing and Loyalty for Cinepolis. So yeah, that's coming up shortly. And thanks again for uh, tuning in to this uh, new segment here at the Box Office Podcast. So let's go right into the feature interview part of this episode. We've got highlights from that Tuesday morning panel at CinemaCon going over marketing and how exhibitors are engaging with today's audiences coming out of the pandemic. Sarah Whitten from CNBC, she is the moderator in this session, and Annalise Holyoke from Cinepolis USA, she starts off the conversation talking about how her circuit has tackled some special engagements, some special programs to try to eventize that movie-going experience for folks looking for a slightly different way of enjoying their time at the movies. Here's Annalise kicking off the conversation from Tuesday's panel. One of the things we noticed is that naturally over the years people were coming to the theater on Sundays and kind of practicing their own self-care. And I was traveling a lot at the time and I was seeing a lot of people doing face masks on airplanes and all of these things. And so I thought, how could we bring this to the cinema and it evolved a lot with the help of a lot of different people on our team and we came up with the idea of a self-care Sunday screening specifically 
on Sunday nights when it's a slow period. So we knew that if we were going to increase traffic, we'd actually see it pretty immediately because about five o'clock, I'm sure for all of you, it's the same. Traffic does start to die down. So we're giving everyone gold eye patches and a small popcorn. And we have a mindfulness breathing exercise before the movie to get you in the movie going zone. And it's all launching in May for Mental Health Awareness Month. But to Alicia's point, we just wanted to get people excited about going back to the movies. I think for so many people, the movies were their happy place. And then with the pandemic, it got a little scary for some people. We wanted to remind people that like, it's so much better watching it on the big screen. It's totally different from watching it at home when, I don't know about you guys, but we can't even get through an HGTV episode without pausing it five times. So it's nice to see people excited about getting back to the theater. Yeah, and what I love about the promotion is it isn't just like, hey, we're going to watch a romantic movie or, you know, a comedy. You you can watch any movie you want. Exactly. A horror movie, an action movie, whatever it is that <laughs> is your self-care routine. If you like a good scare, you can have a good scare exactly. and have your gold eye masks on. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we play up on the Sunday scaries, but only with the scary movies. Oh. Now, for anyone on, on the panel, what other strategies have you guys been employing in theater? Are you offering unique content? You know, what are you doing to draw in audiences that haven't been coming back? We at AMC have an amazing team dedicated to alternative and inclusive content. So um, and that might look different depending on the community that we're in. It's about you know, since we are a larger chain, it's we have people who understand the individual communities that our theaters still serve because for the guests, it is their local AMC, it is their local theater. So everything from our artisan films to anime, Indian cinema, and recently we've been rolling out our open captioning as well to make, just continue to make movie going a more inclusive experience. Yeah, I'll sort of jump off that self-care concept because I think as marketers, we tend to say, this movie is playing, this movie is playing. I think from an engagement perspective, let's talk a little bit more about why going to the movies is a good thing for you and the experience of hanging out with people that you care about. So I think the messaging that we're trying to do to create that engagement is more about the why movie going makes sense versus just the what movie is playing. Um, and we've really gotten a lot of um, benefit out of that. Fantastic. Now, I want to kind of talk to you smaller footprints over there, the ones that don't have the $25 million budget for marketing. What are the things that you're able to do? Like, what are your superpowers as a smaller footprint that some of the maybe the bigger chains aren't able to, to do? Yeah, as I said before about our social footprint, so we're very localized. So the way we set up our company, Australia New Zealand, that the local manager, for all intents and purposes, is the owner of the business. So if you go to some of these 40,000, 50,000 population towns, we want the people there to think that the person they see at the building is the owner. So we operate as a reasonably large um, circuit in Australia and New Zealand, but on a very local basis. So we can trial things, we can get the managers out into the local communities, talk to the customers, talk to the little old lady if she wants to do something, let's see, let's have a go at it. If it doesn't work, we scrap it, but if it does, maybe we'll roll it out a bit wider. So a good example of that, which is the most random thing I think we've ever done, we've just started knitting sessions in our upmarket cinema in Tasmania. And there's like knitting clubs that come in and watch a movie and knit during the movie. <laughs> I don't know, it's working Honestly, so far. like sign me up for that. <laughs> if there's like a needle point and Again, watch. come to our cinemas and you can- <laughs> All right, I'm going to Australia now. <laughs> I think our superpower is a small exhibitor with two locations, one on the way, is eventizing cinema. We're more nimble uh, than the large organizations. 
And I think our superpower is, is sort of eventizing, but also creating those experiences around going to the movies. So we do crazy stuff. So we do like a, a margarita in a movie and we'll lean into a film and just a bunch of women come and drink margaritas mostly. We'll also do daddy-daughter date night for a kid's film. And it's just, it's such a special moment for, for the fathers and the daughters to take a selfie on the, on, the, on the red carpet. But we're nimble like that, so we can actually then lean into our social media and email to get people out. And we have a bunch of stories about how we overperform on those films uh, based on eventizing. That's fantastic. Also sign me up for margaritas. I'll be coming. <laughs> Rich, I want to keep going with you. A few weeks ago when we were talking, uh, you told me about a specific location you have in Maryland that I would like to visit. It's in a cornfield. Can you talk about the importance of cinemas as destinations? Yes, yeah, so our neighbors are soybean and corn, and we're about five miles north of an already tertiary market, Hagerstown, Maryland. So it's an old 10 screen that we renovated. But I think marketing can allow for a destination cinema like Warehouse Cinemas. When we say, where is Warehouse Cinemas in Hagerstown? We say, if you think you're lost, just keep driving a little further. You'll show up and it'll be nice when you get there. It's all, it's all luxury recliners. I think when you have a good product, the product side of marketing, so in our case, you know, we, we, we do 100% leather recliners. We have a food and beverage component. Uh, we do that eventizing we talked about. I think when, you're, when, you, when your product is good and then you lean into the experiences associated with getting out of the house, you know, the movie is, is certainly part of it. It's the main attraction. But marketing those experiences, layering those in as many as you can with, with not having too many logistics associated with it, people are willing to drive. People are willing, in our, in our case, to drive to the middle of the cornfield. Parking's easy, I'll say that, because there's nothing else around. People appreciate that, but um, yeah, I mean, we've had great experience in that location that uh, you know, most people wrote off. And that last quote came from Rich Dottrich, the CEO of Warehouse Cinemas. Moving further along in the conversation, Sarah Whitten was engaging the panelists on their food and beverage strategies as uh, moviegoers are looking for something slightly different than what they can enjoy at home. We have Annalise Holyoke from Cinepolis USA once again leading the charge in this topic. You know, we started in 2011 in the U.S. as a dine-in concept, and obviously that's not how we started in Mexico and in the other countries that we're in. And so food and beverage has always been a huge focus for us. The pandemic, I think, really let us, as you mentioned, reevaluate who we wanted to be and give us time to perfect the menu. You know, we had a lot of things that were easy to make because we obviously have to serve hundreds of people every hour, unlike a regular restaurant. But we've really kind of reevaluated making more things in-house, trying to produce as many of our own sauces as we can, actually, you know, having less fried items, things that we're actually making. And I think our guests are noticing the difference. I would say the biggest issue at this point is, you know, just the, the workforce and trying to be able to, you know, get our staff available to make all these wonderful items. But um, we've also switched over to like the bottomless popcorn. We have candy in larger sizes now, which people really love. And I'm gluten-free, so I love like we have a lot of gluten-free options, which is cool, and vegan options. And I think also the biggest thing is really tapping those food and beverage industry experts to come on the team. We have someone new in operations starting that has like a very extensive food and beverage background and trying to hire people that have really worked in restaurants as GMs um, because we can definitely teach them the movie side. But teaching the food and beverage side is really tough, especially when you have that much traffic coming in every hour. 
For sure. Ben, I'm going to move on to you. Alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, food and beverage is huge for us, obviously, in our market as well. Australia was the market that originally launched the dining concept via Village with the Gold Class offer, which obviously then came over here with IPIC and a few others. So it's been a thing in Australia for the last 25, 30 years to expect to go to a cinema and get an elevated offer. Most of our locations in both countries now are either fully licensed or on the verge of being licensed. And we do a lot of movie themed cocktails. We partner with the distributors. Hopefully they can fund some of that at times, which is always much easier for us. A lot of concession combos. Yeah, it's massive. We've just recently launched the option to purchase your food and beverage online whilst you're buying your ticket, which we've seen a huge uptake in. We're getting sort of 10, 15% higher bucket size online versus at the concession counter because people are planning ahead. And I think that's probably the last two years, people's habits have changed. They want less contact with people, but they want to plan ahead. So if you're booking a sport sporting ticket, you want to know where you're going for dinner. You want to do it all in one go. So we're trying to capture that all in one hit. They show up, the queues are easier. We get more money. So it's win-win. Win-win. Yeah, that's for sure. Rich, what about you? So we're a little different in that we are a fast casual model. We also took the opportunity over the pandemic to say, do we want to be a restaurant? And uh, I've owned a restaurant before and I won't do that again. The pain of a restaurant is tough. So we're a fast casual model. And so we lean into also the bar and the drinks movie theme. We have a drink called the Serial Killer, which is basically this like wine slushy, but like fruity pebbles on the rim. And we just have fun with that and uh, market that through Instagram, especially. We have a uh, menu that we call elevated comfort food. So basically it's a uh, gourmet grilled cheese. We have three of those. Uh, we have uh, flatbread pizzas and we have gourmet hot dogs. So I think our DNA at Warehouse Cinemas is a little bit food truck, brewery, winery, distillery. That's, that's, our, that's our jam. And so, for example, and we have fun with the names as well, we have a, a grilled cheese called the Miggity Mac. And so it's like this massive grilled cheese. I'm not, not trying to entice you guys to come and watch the movie with us, but um, basically the Miggity Mac is, um, I think the description is so flavorful it'll make you jump, jump. You know, so we sort of have fun. So everyone from the 80s just laughed in the, in the audience. So we just have fun with the names and just that comfort food elevated and, and it's fast casual. So our labor costs are lower and all those things. So that's our model. Um, no, I think Ben brought up a really good point about, you know, online concession sales and, and online things. Obviously, with the pandemic, we've seen that technology sort of come a little bit faster than I think most people were expecting. Anybody else have any kind of thoughts about online ordering or mobile ordering, mobile pay? Yes. Um, How much time do we have? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think just in general, any way for us that we can make not just food and beverage purchasing, but ticket purchasing, the entire experience more seamless for the customer, that's where we invest a lot of time and resources and energy. So we've rolled out mobile ordering for food and beverage just to make take any of the stress out of going to a movie. It should, like Annalise said, it should just be a happy, stress-free time. You don't want to be worried about, you know, finding your seat or standing in a concession line. So we're trying to remove any of that, those pain points from our customers. So definitely mobile ordering has been something that we've been investing in as well as online ticketing. We use the word friction. So I think, I think when we're competing against the couch to come out for an evening, we have to figure out what makes that just a seamless, frictionless, as much as we can, lines, all those things. So I think when, when uh, food, food ordering makes a ton of sense, obviously online ticketing, all those things, but can they just come to the cinema, walk in, grab their meal, and go uh, right to their seat that's already reserved for them? I think that's our challenge as an industry to make sure that we're competing with the couch in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm curious, I know obviously everyone's been making investments during the pandemic for different things. What is something that you feel exhibitors should consider investing in 
going forward? Digital channels, I think, are the biggest one. I mean, as everyone's mentioned, making it as seamless as possible. We have a new website launching soon that's got the seat first booking so that you don't have to go all the way through the process of finding out the showtime is sold out because obviously that's annoying for people and just making it easier for people to book tickets and, and order food ahead of time if that's what they want to do. Yeah, I agree. And our, as I said, we launched our new website a couple of years ago as well in the middle of pandemic, which is not fun, but it's also fun because no one was going there. Same thing, seat first booking, get people in, make it easier for them. You don't want people on your websites for three or four minutes at a time. They should be able to get in, get what they want, see what they want, buy what they want, spend as much money as they can and get out because that's what people expect. They don't want to be mucking around. And loyalty too, I think is a big one. I'd say just beyond that, we talked about making it more seamless and, and frictionless. And when you're competing with the couch too, you also want it to be as immersive as possible. So another big investment for AMC is, of course, premium formats are really big for us. And we just announced a partnership with Cineonic for our laser at AMC initiative, where we'll be rolling out thousands of laser projectors over the next couple of years. So it's just continuing to make investments that make it easier to purchase tickets. And then once you're there, make it a more immersive, exciting experience so that people remember that there's a good reason to get off your couch and to come to the movies. Absolutely. Now, how have you sort of been telling customers about these upgrades? Are you going to social with them? Are you going, you know, email? What is sort of your method for telling people, hey, we're upgrading this. It's a better experience. Come back. Yeah. I mean, we definitely take a multi-channel approach, primarily digital, social media, digital advertising. And as Rich mentioned, our you know email is a big one for us, communicating to our AMC Stubbs loyalty members. So we kind of take an omni-channel approach to, to anything that we're doing and just work as a team in the marketing department to determine, you know, what's the priority message so that we're kind of streamlining what we're communicating to guests, not bombarding them with different things from every angle, but having more of a streamlined voice of, of how we want to talk to the guests. Absolutely. I know, Rich, you've talked about how important data is and sort of figuring out what your customer wants, what they don't want, and targeting for the things, you know, maybe, hey, you'll be interested in this. Can you talk a little bit about the strategy you guys have had? Yeah, I think you recognize post-pandemic and maybe before then that the studios do a great job of sort of flyover marketing and, and general awareness of the film. And obviously Marvel, the brands have their own sort of uh, momentum. So we're really working on sort of predicting the next movie that someone wants to watch. I mean, we get this from Amazon, we get this from Netflix, the next movie. And we're a really small player, so we don't have a huge budget to work with, but how can we do a better job leveraging the data we have in our POS to predict the next movie that Ben wants to see and then target them one-to-one -one as opposed to sort of mass email. And I think as marketers, as an industry, we need to figure that out because I think um, there's a lot of money left on the table in week two. If that consumer, if we know, if we can filter out the consumers that haven't come that came to another Marvel film for whatever reason they didn't come in week two, let's send them an email, let's follow them on social, let's do some other things that basically create that awareness and then the call to action quickly and easily to basically order their ticket online and maybe food as well. We do a lot of that at Cinepolis as well. We do a lot of second week targeting. And one of the things that we have great engagement from is, is only sending emails that are personalized for the most part. Occasionally we do send mass emails to everyone, but for the most part, if you've never seen a Marvel movie, we're not gonna let you know Marvel tickets are on sale. But if you haven't seen it in the first week and you have seen a Marvel movie, we're definitely going to send you a second week offer. At least for us, a lot of our members are also members of AMC and other things, so we have to work a little extra harder to get them to come see a premium format and, and spend the extra dollars at our, our buildings. 
For sure. One of the things I definitely want to talk about is loyalty programs. How important is it to have a loyalty program? Or can you find a way of marketing the experience and that will bring people back? What is sort of that strategy for each of you? It's definitely a critical part of our business. Our AMC Stubbs members are some of our best customers. And with a large footprint like we have, it's the best way that we can know our customers. And just echoing what Rich said, the data is so important. And I think it, it helps us to work smarter and harder. But it's like any good loyalty program, it's a two-way street. So we get information from them, you know, what movies are they interested in? What do they buy when they're at the theater? How frequently are they coming? And in turn, we can better target our communication to them. We can better offer them promotions that they'll find appealing. And so they're our best customers. We want to earn their trust, keep their trust. And so we we try not to over-communicate to them. We try to give them information that really they'll be interested in and that will they'll find compelling to come back to a theater. But for us, it's absolutely important. And one of our biggest initiatives right now is just getting those members back to the theater, getting them re-engaged and back in the movie going habit. Because as for all of us, that's still just one of the challenges is getting people back and in that movie going habit. Uh, yeah, I'd echo, echo what Alicia said. Loyalty for us is a big thing. We've had a program for sort of 15 years or so, roughly. They're our most loyal customers. You can always see they're the first ones to buy, but they're also our most vocal. So they're the first ones to let give us feedback, which we encourage. There's no point us doing all this marketing having them have a terrible experience, but not knowing. So that's probably the main benefit we get from it, not just the spend and the, the loyalty, but the ability to fix things very quickly. If you can see a pattern of a lot of loyal members letting you know that something's gone horribly wrong. So we use it for that too. So I have a little bit different take on loyalty. So as a small exhibitor, you know, I think loyalty to the extent that you can personalize and predict the consumer behavior for them to buy a ticket, it's great. But I think sometimes we default to just loyalty for loyalty's sake, and we default to points. And for us, at least, again, we're trying to personalize this experience. We're the small, we're the scrappy startup you know, circuit. How can we earn their loyalty with a great experience, a great customer service element, and then they come back again because of that, or maybe even surprise and delight them with an additional experience, not necessarily more points. Because again, this is a little bit of a theoretical answer, but that's what we're thinking about because I think loyalty has been around for a while now and we needed that data, but I think there's a, there's a way to get not only loyalty data, but also transactional data with the caveat that California has their own laws on that, but the ability to for us to sort of supplement our data with, with additional data from loyalty and then lean into that, I think makes sense to just say loyalty for uh, loyalty's sake and points. And those were insights on the F&B business and everything related to some of those innovations going on. And to cap off our highlights from that panel session on Tuesday morning, we've got some insights from the panelists on the pandemic strategies that maybe are probably going to stay in the pandemic. Things that happen that might return, that might not. This is Rich Dottridge kicking off the conversation on strategies they implemented during the COVID-19 crisis that might or might not stick around in the future. We were surprised how many people love retro movies. Like we had to do that for late months. 2020 for months. <laughs> and it was like, we're playing Jurassic Park again. They don't want to come. So what we learned from that was it was you can eventize even uh, retro films 
So we have a thing called Film League that sort of we, we double down on where it's just once a month, but we, we sell out 300, 400 people on those nights with our marketing and our strategy around. And we'd let the consumer let us know what they're thinking about watching, what they would like to see on the big screen, and we, and we give them back. So I think retro films, when sprinkled in effectively, I think make sense in some more movie tickets. Yeah, and some I think we're always just trying to learn. So sometimes the retro films do work, and sometimes you think you'll have a great success, and then nobody shows up. So I think just in general, trying to keep track of what does work, what didn't work, and then just build from there. There's a lot that doesn't work, and there's a lot that does work. So Some things like the theater buyouts for $99, $100, I think those worked a little too well, because people are you know, asking for those things now, and we have to kind of explain to them, like, oh, we have actual movies now, so we can't give you a theater on a Saturday night for $99. Sorry. <laughs> And that'll do it for today's episode of the Box Office Podcast here in our daily CinemaCon edition presented by Ice Theaters. Thanks again to our guests from that marketing panel that happened on Tuesday morning. We're proud to bring you those insights. And don't forget, we are coming with another review, another highlight session of early morning CinemaCon panel that actually happened on Wednesday. That Wednesday, 7.45 a.m. panel on hiring, on staffing, on retention, moderated by NATO's Jackie Brenneman with representatives from both exhibition and distribution. We've got that coming to you here on Friday. Don't forget tomorrow, the last episode of our weekly podcast series. And well, to sign off here, thank you again to my co-hosts, Rebecca Pauly and Sean Robbins for their analysis and insights. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro, the box office company, and Record Edit Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. We are doing this daily this week here from CinemaCon. But if you like what we're doing, we're on every week on Thursday. So feel free to hit that subscribe button. It will really help us out. On behalf of all of us, thank you again. And we will talk once again tomorrow. <laughs>